one thing that we're seeing from the media is that a lot of people are presenting evidence that turns out some cases to be old or faulty or fraudulent, making bold claims about Putin's going to fail and Zelensky is going to succeed or this and that. And what we want to do is instead of making those bold claims, try to evaluate different arguments and kind of handicap them for the audience. The same reason why we're being very cautious now, because we're not foreign policy experts, nor are they in any particular way. And it's really hard to stay up so early on what's really true and factual right now. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlatt. Well, we sure picked uh, a week to take off. Corey, where are we going to start? Yes, a lot going on in the news. Coming up, new updates from the CDC signaling major shifts in the state of the pandemic. We'll talk through all those changes and new studies that are once again blurring our best guess of where the virus actually came from. President Biden nominates Katanji Brown-Jackson for the Supreme Court. We'll discuss that pick and how it's been received in the media and in Washington. And Ravi will give us a quick update on the setbacks to the Manhattan DA's investigation into the Trump organization. But, of course, we will begin with what's going on in Ukraine. Six days into Russia's full invasion, Putin's military, as of this recording, has been unable to capture any of the major cities they expected to quickly overrun. Spirited resistance from Ukrainian troops and civilians and some heroic leadership from the Ukrainian president all offer hope that the country could somehow hold on to its independence. But these are early days and Moscow is still ramping up its war effort. More and more vehicles and heavy weapons are pouring into the country along with reinforcements from neighboring Belarus. The expectation is that Ukrainian forces, brave as they've been, can't hold off the Russians forever. Plus, the economic sanctions bearing down on Putin's regime will take a while to set in. So let's just start with where things stand now. A lot has happened in this last week. What is our overall impression of this horrific catastrophe that's unfolding in Eastern Europe right now? Yeah, I think a good place to start is just how we plan to cover this. And I think the service that we want to provide to our audience is not to sit here and be like the sage on the stage and have all the answers to every question. We're not experts and and we don't think that any one expert really holds the answer to what's Mm -hmm. happening here. It seems like even some of the key players here, like Putin, Mm -hmm. Zelensky, they they don't know exactly what's going to happen next. So I think part of what we're trying to do is, is uh, sift through various resources, experts, sources that are out there and point the audience in the direction of people who are making claims that could be credible, that seem to be onto something, evaluate claims that we're not sure of, and then constantly update the evidence as we see it. Because one thing that we're seeing from the media is that a lot of people are presenting evidence that, that turns out some cases to be old or faulty or fraudulent mm-hmm. and making bold claims about this Putin's going to fail and Zelensky is going to succeed or this and that. And and what we want to do is instead of making those bold claims, try to evaluate different arguments and kind of handicap them for the audience. And so I think to start from that, I think there's this instinct within us to be optimistic because we we want the Ukrainians to succeed. And there are some reasons to be optimistic. Like the Economist had a really good summary of this in which they said essentially that Putin's made a few mistakes. One is that he's underestimated his enemy, essentially has painted Zelensky as a drug-addled Nazi. Uh, and it seems so far that both Zelensky and the Ukrainian people are more united They're more sovereign in the way that they think about their country than at least Putin was painting Mm -hmm. them as this sort of phony country. It seems that Putin may have mismanaged some initial parts of this invasion, although it's really hard to really evaluate that that claim clearly. He certainly has uh, misunderstood or at least underestimated the West. I think that the West was a little flat-footed in the beginning with sanctions, which has really come hard, something we'll come back to. And then finally, 
he at least has overestimated his domestic support. He hasn't really told his story mm -hmm. to the Russian people beyond you know this sort of denazification story that he's been selling his people. He hasn't told a compelling story and there's protests. He's arrested thousands of protesters in Russia. Tons of evidence that prominent Russians, you know, the way that they push back on their leadership is different than we do because the stakes are way higher down there or over there. Yeah. But there is some evidence that he's facing some significant domestic resistance. Now, will it be enough? That's unclear. Yeah, according to a Russian human rights group, there were 5,000 anti-war protesters that were arrested in the country. And, you know, com coming from the UN now, we have evolving numbers out of Ukraine on the casualties, but it looks like there are at least 136 civilians that have died. Um, and that's probably a lowballing, cautious number coming out of the UN. To go to your point about the kind of national fortitude that's coming out of this in Ukraine, um, Yuval Noah Harari, who's like a very famous anthropologist, popular writer, he wrote Sapiens. Um, he came out with a, a recent article that I thought was really powerful about kind of the spirit that's coming out of Ukraine right now. And he said, quote, to reestablish the Russian empire, Putin needs a relatively bloodless victory that will lead to a re relatively hateless occupation. By spilling more and more Ukrainian blood, Putin is making sure his dream will never be realized. Nations are ultimately built on stories. Each passing day adds more and more stories Ukrainians will tell not only in the dark days ahead, but in the decades and generations to come. And so, you know, that is an optimistic take, but I think he definitely did underestimate just how much Ukraine would pull together, um, just how passionate the people on the ground would be, including their president. And there's also what looks to be now almost a 40 mile long convoy, Russian convoy heading towards the capital. So that's disheartening. Yeah, it's not looking great for Ukraine right now. But that's interesting that you point out this fact that Putin really underestimated Ukraine, thought he was able, thought he was going to be able to go in there just really quickly and that they would just, you know, surrender. Mm -hmm. And instead, they've been fighting back um, very hard. And the international response has been overwhelmingly in Ukraine's favor here. Uh, China, who originally backed uh, Russia's efforts, is calling for de-escalation. They're starting to distance themselves from the Kremlin. And Russia is starting to really feel the international burn here. They have been kicked out of so many things as a result of this invasion. Um, FIFA has kicked Russia out, the International Olympic Committee has kicked Russia out. Russia vodka is being banned all over the country. States like Ohio, Texas, Iowa, North Carolina, and my home state of Alabama have all banned the sale of Russia vodka. Those are beer drinking states anyway. Also, they've been kicked out of Eurovision. I mean, that's like one of the biggest things in, in Europe as far as like a competition, the World Games. The European Union, United Kingdom, and Baltic countries like Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania have all closed their airspace to Russian airlines. So, there's definitely been an international pushback to that that I think that Russia did not see coming. Yeah, and I think some of the most significant pushback has obviously been these economic sanctions. sanctions yes. In the beginning, I was a bit puzzled by how weak the West's response was. And also, give, I was puzzled by how many sanctions were even left on the table. Like, If you, like me, believe that Russia was trying really hard to manipulate our elections, that alone, to me, would have been a reason to have really hefty response against the Russians. But... One thing that's been reassuring is that in the past few days, the sanctions have been severe. And there are two things I want to point to. One is the SWIFT cutoff. So SWIFT is a, a Belgium-based uh, financial communication system that is used to transfer money. And essentially, if you don't have the ability to do SWIFT, uh, you're essentially in the dark ages uh, economically. You can't transfer large sums of money across borders without using really old school methods. And so there's been a partial cutoff of Russian banks from SWIFT, which is huge. There's also been some indication that the central banks of the EU and the US are going to freeze assets, uh, Russian assets. Now, this is significant because essentially, and, and 
David Frum did really good reporting on this in the Atlantic. Russia has billions and billions of dollars in reserves in Western banks. Essentially, we owe Russia money, billions and billions of dollars. And there's the old saying that, you know, if you owe the bank $10,000, it's your problem. But if you owe the bank $10 billion, it's the bank's problem. And that's essentially what's going on here is that by freezing assets, and it's unclear yet exactly how this is going to play out, by freezing uh, so much of the Russian foreign currency assets, this could lead to a financial panic in Russia. It could uh, degrade the Russian currency, which we're already starting to see happen. And this is a massive, massive blow to Russia and something that I don't think that they can sustain very long. There are all sorts of scenarios where you know they do have like this huge holding of gold, which they could mm-hmm. pr- you know presumably transfer across border to China or something to get but get money. But like these are all disaster scenarios for Russia. So to me, this this is a significant blow. And outside of all the other symbolic stuff, like sporting events, all that stuff really matters. But this, to me, if the sanctions are to succeed, this combined with some of the more personal targeted sanctions against people close to Putin and Putin himself could make a difference here. Definitely. And interestingly, as all of that banking activity is taking place, crypto is kind of having a big rally right now. Um, per your prediction? Yeah, uh, I was well, I was expecting. But I mean, on both sides, there are innocent civilians who can't access their net worth. And so, um, and of course, I'm sure there's some nefarious stuff going on as well, but um, it's definitely rallying right now, um, I think as a result. And also um, on the kind of NATO world stage, Germany has um, na- announced that they're going to increase their natural gas reserves. So they're not as dependent on Russia. And they're also increasing their defense expenditure, which is pretty important because for a while Trump was kind of hounding them for not holding up that 2% of GDP agreement that NATO had. And so there's definitely some interesting uh, kind of bucking up of the military might on the NATO side right now. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to guard against right now, because as I mentioned earlier, I think we're all searching for positive news on this front. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of things to watch out for. Number one is that this is the early stages of this conflict. And there was a really good interview with David Petraeus in which he kind of compared this to the Iraq war and talked about what's similar and what's different. On the positive side, Ukraine is bigger than Iraq and has 50% more people. And it is a more unified populace in opposition to Russian invasion than, say, the Iraqis were when the US invaded, because the Iraqis had all these subpopulations, the Kurds, the Christians, the Yazidis, parts of the Shia population were supportive initially of the US response. And in some of the, some cases were continued to be supportive even when things went wrong. Whereas the large, large swath of the, of the Ukrainian people are against this. Uh, and the second thing is that counterinsurgency is very troop intensive. And he basically did his own back of the envelope math and said, they're gonna need a lot more troops than were amassed on the border to deal with a potential counterinsurgency. And and what we mean by counterinsurgency is if the Russians take the major cities and then the Ukrainian population rises up and uses guerrilla warfare, then the Russians would need more troops, which is, is which is a scenario that's very plausible right now. I would also want to caution us to to think about a couple of like mental traps that we have here in the West. Number one is I could think a, a a motivated reason to find the positive mm-hmm. stories. The second is our lack of attention span. Like, I'm worried that all these people who are, you know, throwing up the Ukrainian colors this week, two weeks from now, will find something else. You yeah. know, this could be like the equivalent of the black square where where if Russia waits us out, we won't 
like have the attention span and the willpower to to deal with the downsides of all this, which gets me to another trap, which is our willingness to sacrifice. Like, are we willing to see the stock market continue to go down because of this, to see inflation go up because of all the various Gas sanctions? Gas prices will rise. Yeah. Are we willing to stomach this? So that's my big question right now. I think we should. I think it's really important that we care about this, which I'll get to. But my big question is, are we willing to to see this through in the long term? Like if three months from now, everything is more expensive and the market continues to be down, what's the conversation like in the US? I think the short answer to that is that a lot of people aren't, honestly. And I think you're very right. We've, we're seeing all of this posturing and we're seeing all this, you know, people turning their Facebook covers, or if they still use Facebook, or their Instagram covers to uh, the Ukrainian flag. But in two, three months, when it really becomes the dark days They're becoming Ukraine, Ukrainians in the meta metaverse? They're yeah. changing their, <laughs> yeah, their look? Yeah, they yeah. might be doing that. Yeah. Um, but like you said, when it comes to the real dark days of this war, which haven't even begun to, to come into play here, uh, will these people still be standing by? Will they be willing to deal with the consequences here in America that we're going to have to deal with? I, I don't really think so. But it's interesting to look at the domestic response here in America to what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, most American political leaders, Republican and Democrat, have stood with Ukraine. They're condemning Russia and Putin for what they are doing. Uh, Mitt Romney is looking a little bit better these days because he actually warned about Russia back in the 2012 presidential race. I was mocked for it. Yeah, I think it was your boss who... Said something to the effect when when Romney said that Russia was our biggest enemy. Uh, I was out of the administration by then. Yeah, but I think your boss, <laughs> didn't he say something like... Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat. Because a few months ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda. You said Russia. In the 1980s or now, calling to ask for their foreign policy back. Because... You know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. That didn't age well. Yeah, and he was wrong well. about that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. to be clear, I wasn't there at that yeah. time. Yeah. And I certainly wasn't working on foreign policy. But yes, yeah. absolutely. But there's also been a lot of like really crazy takes on, on some of this stuff. Like Donald Trump, for instance. I don't want to talk too much about Trump in this particular instance. But as far as his current comments, I mean, he called Putin smart and savvy and a genius. And I said, this is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? While also saying he supports Zelensky. So this is like that Trump thing where he just says, you know, he kind of takes the both sides, good people on both sides again type um, scenario. And I just, I don't understand. I mean, I guess he just, you know, just cover your ass kind of thing. He does. Yeah. I'm seeing like from a lot of people in my life, like this question of like, why should I care about Ukraine? And I think there are a couple of things that to me stand out. Number one is that anytime there's a loss of innocent life, we should care. Ukraine is a sovereign democracy. And I think there's a lot of comparison to the Iraq war. I think there's some people in the U.S. who are kind of almost making the argument for Putin that, oh, hey, we invaded Iraq and this is the same and we should basically let him do his own thing and focus on our own problems. Number one, I was opposed to the Iraq war, as a lot of us were. Yeah. And a lot of us supported Obama, supported him in particular because he was opposed to the Iraq war. But even if you were supportive of the Iraq war, as a lot of these people like Ben Shapiro were, there is a difference between these two scenarios. Ukraine is a democracy being invaded by an autocracy. Iraq was a brutal dictatorship. I still oppose that war, but it was a totally different scenario. It's also notable that Ukraine um, became independent in 91. At the time, they had the third largest stockpile of nuclear weapons. A few years later, they signed the Non-Proliferation Treaty, mm -hmm. and they agreed to give up their nuclear weapons in exchange for a basically a promise that both Russia and the United States would look after them. 
And so yeah. we owe it to them to uh, ensure their security because they did us a solid by getting rid of their nuclear weapons. And anybody looking at this, whether you're Iran, North Korea, et cetera, would be incredibly foolish to give up their nuclear weapons under some kind of promise from the West, from Russia, or anybody else, if we're then gonna allow a country to be invaded and taken over and decimated after it gave up the one insurance policy that they had to ensure their safety. Yeah, I mean, I think the Ukrainians are completely right to be furious with Russia and the U.S. for being on kind of both sides of this conflict, but also being part of the NPT that they signed and promising them protection. And as much as I'm like generally anti-intervention, you know, a lot of what's happening in Ukraine is the result of that intervention in the 90s and leaving them completely defenseless and promising them defenses that we can't give them now. Or defenses that we won't give them now. <laughs> um, it also is just weird, you know, the, the right wing reaction to this has been a little odd to me because a lot of it is focused on what the, what is perceived as the failures of President Biden. And I'm still trying to figure out what exactly they wanted him to do. Mike Pompeo said on February 24th that President Biden has been weak towards Putin, unstable and unclear. He doesn't understand what is at stake in the fight against Russia, doesn't know that it takes strength to defend America and keep us out of war, which is just an oxymoron. He, he wants us to defend America yet also keep us out of war. And that's what it seems like. There's been this Republican narrative that, oh, Biden was is weak on, you know, Russia. Like, he didn't stop them. It's like, okay, do you want him to use the military to stop them? No, 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 no. We don't want anything to do with this war. But it's like, okay, so what What exact, what measures should he have taken to prevent this? That's, that's the question I have. Yeah, I'm seeing a ton of memes out there just about, like, this wouldn't happen under Trump or whatever. And so I'll deal with those in a second. There's one response from Ben Shapiro that I want to start with here, which is he said, quote, the West is focused on expanding its national debt and exploding the gender binary. Whatever advantages we have on an objective level are widely undermined by our narcissistic idiocy. Translation, the national debt and the gender conversation is distracting us or weakening us in the international sphere. Therefore, what? I'm not exactly sure. I have a couple problems with this. Number one is Ben Shapiro was a national cheerleader of the Iraq war, continued to be long into the war. There, if there's anything that has weakened our position is the fact that we were fighting a two-front war, both of which were unwinnable at the same time, with no accountability whatsoever for years and years and years. And he supported that every step of the way. It's why the American public has no appetite for a war today and the deployment of troops. He also uh, points out the national debt, which exploded under Trump, too. And if you look at the history of the national debt under, you know, Jen Shapiro is a Republican, I presume. He's certainly a conservative. The national debt under conservatives, the, the record is not really great. I wish it were better. It would actually make me more likely to be a conservative. Uh, and also, I have a question, like, what undermines us more? Uh, is it the gender conversation, which, you know, I have certain problems with the way we talk about these things. Is it the national debt? Or is it the fact that we had a former president who refused to agree to a peaceful transfer of power and now is using as a litmus test in all future elections for which he was going to give support, whether it's this midterm election or anything else, the promise that you say that the last election was stolen, contrary to all evidence. And what weakens us more, right? Or the fact that the former president tried to leverage military aid to get the president of Ukraine to do his political bidding and investigate Trump's political opponent in Biden. Like, what undermines us more? So to me, this seems like a really silly cherry picking of issues and trying to inject the culture war into, you know, what's a huge international tragedy. Yeah, I think it's also important to remember that it's still day six. We're still very early days. And tonight, Biden's going to have his State of the Union address. And I think we're going to get a lot more from that um, and some more fruitful commentary, hopefully. And it's also interesting to hear some people in kind of the alternative media world who are changing their tune, who didn't expect the Ukraine um, invasion. But 
uh, Saigar and Jetty and um, Matt Taibbi have both issued like accountability kind of apologies. And it's, you know, we all make mistakes and I think it's good to own up to them when they actually happen. And it's good to see that some people in alternative media are doing that. But it's the same reason why we're being very cautious now because we're not foreign policy experts, nor are they in any particular way. And it's important to make sure that we're, we're being honest and reserved. But I'm sure that even in our own coverage, Today, we're going to ultimately issue some corrections because this is an evolving crisis and there there's a lot of misinformation floating around, disinformation, propaganda, and it's really hard to stay up so early on what's really true and factual right now. Yeah, and I think um, I, I agree with you. I think it was good that Taibi and, and Breaking Points issued apologies. I do have some, I point out a couple of things about these apologies that I find interesting. So the Breaking Points uh, tweet, uh, accountability, Given the track record of U.S. intelligence, I did not believe their maximalist claims and did not believe that Putin would so flagrantly break the world order with this crime of invasion. I was wrong. We'll do my best in our continued coverage of this tragedy. So I like the fact that they're owning up to it. But this is like apologizing your spouse and being like, look, given your track record and all these maximalist claims you're doing, I'm really sorry for cheating on you. But I'm going to try to do my better. And and it would be one thing if they were this measured, humble organization, yeah. but they go after everybody for their miscoverage. Mm -hmm. They go after the conventional media on everything. They're gleeful about it, something that we pointed out before. And so, um, and similar things could be said about Tybee. What I would have loved to see is a straight apology, a deeper explanation about how we got here. Like what was the bias that got you here? Like the maximalist claims, right? That you're talking about. And is there anything else going on here? Is it possible that there's a group think here going on between the Tybees of the world, the Sagers of the world, the Tucker Carlson's of the world, you know, these people who, the Glenn Greenwalds who kind of are kind of performing for each other. I would love a deep, deep explanation of that. Second is what other coverage outside of this could potentially be suspect? Like I think of their January 6th coverage, for example. They they presented this case that there was, that essentially like there might've been like an FBI inside job situation going on January 6th. That's not the Ukraine invasion, because Ukraine invasion is a, an affirmative act that can be proven, and that makes you have egg on your face. The January 6th coverage, it's hard to prove a negative. Like, how am I supposed to prove that the FBI wasn't involved in January 6th, even though there have been multiple congressional statements to the contrary, absolutely no evidence to actually show that anything that they said about January 6th in that segment and breaking points is true. So my problem is, go deeper explain what your bias was, and maybe then have another statement to be like, hey, maybe I should be have a little bit more grace of my colleagues in the media. And instead of being gleeful every time they screw something up, be like, good, great. Tell like what we're doing here essentially is saying, look, what's the bias? Can you fix it? Move on. That's my problem with this. I think Tybee's explanation is the same. It's this long explanation that has more about the flaws of the people who weren't a part of this misreporting than it is about your own flaws. And that's my problem with all of this. I just think though, when, when the news is buzzing like it is with a conflict like this, it does, I give them both credit for putting themselves out there and actually saying, hey, no, look at me, I was wrong because this would be a really easy time to kind of just slip into the background. So I agree that they could probably be a little more forthcoming, but it, I do give them credit for actually coming out there and correcting the record. Yeah, I think like, I guess we're, we're kind of seeing this differently is I think they had to here because it was the invasion. I think in, in situations where some of their other reporting where they're throwing like 20 darts at the board and maybe one of them sticks, they mm -hmm. don't have to issue an apology because it's it's hard and i'm making this up it's hard to 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 prove uh that the fbi wasn't involved in january 6th like that's yeah. just like they don't have to issue an apology because there's no accountability there right yeah. 
Yeah. Whereas if they throw 20 of those darts and one of them happened to be true, then they're like, oh, see, mainstream media, you got this wrong. And then to me, that's just a like a disservice to your audience because they have to constantly be chasing one theory after another. And uh, if you're not holding yourself accountable, the only times we hear from you on this kind of stuff is when it is impossible to say anything otherwise. Yeah. Hopefully, you know? yeah. Hopefully accountability is what comes out of this. Hopefully these alternative media outlets uh, just think a little bit more thoughtfully about what they're reporting and, and try to maintain good journalistic ethics instead of just throwing conspiracy theories at the wall for ratings and likes and reacts online. But moving on now to covid there have been a couple of updates that we want to cover. Over the past week, the CDC updated its masking guidelines, linking it to hospitalization rates instead of positivity rate. The CDC also updated its vaccination guidelines. And finally, three studies published this past weekend bring back the theory that COVID may have originated at a Wuhan market and not in a lab. Now, these studies aren't peer reviewed, but they have been making a dent in the lab leak theory. So let's start off with the most the biggest change I think so far has been the, dro the dropping of mass mandates. Dates. Uh, you know, what exactly is going on here? What percentage rates are we seeing? What, what's going on with the mask mandate drops? Yeah. So as you mentioned, um, the CDC is now recommending that we link masking policy to hospitalization rates rather than cases, which certainly with Omicron feels very logical since the cases have been totally disproportionate with hospitalizations that we saw historically in the pandemic. Um, and so that went from 98% of people in an area advised to wear masks down to 28% just based on risk. Um, and only schools and high-risk areas are um, urged to continue masking. And then furthermore, there's now the wrinkle of if you're in a medium risk area, you don't have to mask unless you're an at risk population, which I think a lot of people have been kind of agitating for for a while because there are clear demographics that have greater risks than others. And so I think this is a very measured update um, given where we are in the pandemic. And then there was also the second um, vaccination alteration where um, now the CDC is advising to wait eight weeks or up to eight weeks between doses of the vaccine because it will extend your immunity. And also they mentioned that it will mitigate the the small but legitimate risk of myocarditis in young men. And so that's another important um, kind of story that has been circulating in media that's being validated by the CDC. So yeah, it's important to point out though that the CDC is recommending that people wait up to eight weeks to, between their first and second doses if they're between 18 and 65 and if they don't have any, they're not at, an at-risk community. Basically. Yes, so that's a, that's a broader guidance to extend immunity and then there also is within their guidance um, and the acknowledgement that in within young men, the mm -hmm. myocarditis risk is reduced with the extended period as well. Yeah, it seems like in, in New York, you know, where we are right now, they're basically rolling back most of these mandates, um, the, the mask mandates, the, the indoor dining vaccine mandates, uh, which I sounds like it's the right thing to do here. One thing that as a sports fan I find puzzling about this is that Kyrie Irving, who I'm no fan of, but <laughs> nor am I a fan of the Brooklyn Nets franchise, but I, I think it is weird that he still can't play basketball in New York, and I think it's because of the employer mandate, yeah. yes. because he's an employee can somebody, like, if we're trying to be as charitable as possible here, what could possibly explain the discrepancy between keeping the employee your mandate in while all this other stuff goes? I think the city still has a mandate on employers that people, anyone who's employed within the city needs to be vaccinated if they're coming into an office or, like, in a 
uh, in context setting regularly. So, and Eric Adams discussed this and said that like he doesn't want to stop him specifically from playing, but making an exception for him would set a bad example, which I mean, I kind of think the solution is to drop that mandate in yeah, general. Well, I'm like, not sure why that's still what's there. What's the difference between going to, in, in some ways, going to a restaurant? Isn't that in many yeah. ways more risky because it's like short term, everybody's in there, you go your separate ways. Whereas it's, it's harder to contact trace that. Whereas if, if yeah. somebody, you know, God forbid here, were to come down with COVID, we could easily contact trace it in a way you yeah. couldn't in, in, in a, into a restaurant. The same it doesn't make a ton of sense to me either. Yeah. And I think if you're going to roll back the mandates effectively in almost every other setting, it's it kind of feels a little disjointed to still have this. And you have then the glaring example of him not being able to play that kind of calls into question whether that should still be a mandate in place. Well, they got Ben Simmons on the nets now, so hopefully that'll that'll you know pick up some of the slack. But what's going on <laughs> with this, uh, the Wuhan, so we talked a little bit on this show a little bit about the Wuhan lab leak theory. It is just a theory. It's something that's never been fully proven as far as the origins of COVID-19. But now it seems that the original theory, which was that this originated at like a wet market in Wuhan from some type of transmission from animal to human, that theory is now starting to circulate again due to some uh, reporting from the New York Times. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think this gets to like sort of our theory of reporting, right? Like we had done a, a segment a, a little while ago in which we kind of updated our thinking on this. And at least personally, I had been you know, somebody who believed that the Wuhan theory was plausible, but probably not likely for a while. And then during our last segment, I shared that due to some reporting, it was a really good Vanity Fair piece and others convinced me that the Wuhan theory was probably more likely than when not. When you say Wuhan theory, you mean the lab leak the theory? The lab leak theory, sorry. Yeah. And so that's where I had been, right? Was that I, I was starting to think, all right, this is more likely than not. And that no matter which way this goes down, there's been some seriously problematic reporting on this, like underreporting of the lab leak theory, right? And some weird stuff happening with the U.S. government. You can go back and listen to that segment. We'll put it in the show notes. Well, now three studies have come out that seem to trace the outbreak. There's a market in Wuhan. And one of these studies seems to strongly suggest that this spilled over from animals and that there are two different strains of the virus present in animals pretty early on in this pandemic. I think it was like December. And so this, you know, there's a really good write-up of all of this in nature. And essentially what they're saying is, and I don't truly understand enough about this. We'll link to it in the show notes. They're essentially saying that this is strongly suggestive that the virus couldn't have come from the Wuhan lab because of the two different strains that were present in two different animals. And basically what they're saying was it couldn't have evolved in humans that fast to give us two strains at that point of time in the market. Therefore, they suggest that animals had this earlier. It was able to mutate and create two different strains. They show up at the market, they infect humans, and they use some kind of statistical analysis to try to show this. I don't think it's just positive yet, and it certainly isn't peer-reviewed, but it does, there's, there seem to be some strong claims from scientists in here, including some scientists who had previously been entertaining the lab leak theory, who seem to think that this is very forceful evidence that it originated in the market. Yeah, and I think another wrinkle in what they found is that there were certain stalls of the market that had more of the samples, so that might be... Um, and those are stalls where there were live animals held. So that might be further proof. Um, but I think it's also worth noting, you know, when we covered a recent um, non-peer-reviewed study about whether lockdowns were successful, it's important to make sure that we air out all the kind of 
issues with the study as well. And within the New York Times' own reporting, they have a lot of experts that are quoted that are suggesting that, you know, this does, it seems like there was almost definitely a super spreader event that happened in the market and that it was circulating in that area. But that doesn't necessarily prove that there was not someone that came in and spread it that way. And there also still has not been any animal that's been identified. Um, They tested a ton of like frozen meats and live animals and were not able to pin anything down specifically. And then as you said, it wasn't peer reviewed. It's still preprint. And the two major studies that are um, cited are also done by the same people. So it's just important to kind of keep that in mind. And Alina Chan, who's from MIT, um, she's pointed out that um, it was funded at least in part by NIAID, um, which is what Fauci heads and does potentially have problematic ties to funding Wuhan research. And one of the authors of the study was on the very controversial February 1st, 2020 conference call with Fauci when when there was um, talk that the lab leak theory was at least possible. And then within days, he was going out publicly and saying it wasn't. So I think it's, you know, I I would be hesitant to come down either way and say it definitely is or definitely isn't. But I think it also doesn't disprove that there was some cover up that happened within our scientific community and our government that is that needs to be still held to accountability, because no matter where the science comes down in the end, there was definitely an effort to kind of shield China if if Wuhan was or if the Institute of Virology was the source. Yeah, and it definitely seems to have been a, a cover up in China, and which makes totally. this really hard to get to the bottom of. And mm-hmm. I continue to lay blame at their feet. There was one interesting uh, co-author here, this guy named Michael Warby. He's a virologist at the University of Arizona at Tucson, and he co-authored one of these papers. I would say he, I kind of sympathize with him because he actually, in May 2021, wrote a letter in Science Magazine, I believe, in which he seriously, he pressed the scientific community to take the lab leak theory seriously. Mm -hmm. And he's one of the co-authors of this, and this is what he had to write after this evidence came out. He said, when you look at all the evidence, it's clear that this started at the market. Separate lines of analysis point to it, uh, and it's extremely improbable that two distinct lineages of SARS-CoV-2 could have been derived from a laboratory and then coincidentally ended up at the market. So this is what he's saying. He's not dispositive. Like you said, there's like, there's also people quoted in nature who are saying, look, this is interesting, but still doesn't rule out the fact that somebody showed up to this market with it. He's saying, look, like the fact that there are two different strains Mm -hmm. to him seems dispositive. I don't know enough to know one way or the other, but I do think it's like, we wanted to update this story because I think I was like strident the last time saying, all right, I, I keep moving on this. It's almost embarrassing. But I guess like I, I, I sympathize with people who keep moving on this because we'll, we don't know a lot. Totally. Like, and China hasn't given us all the evidence and we, we're not PhDs in epidemiology. And I think this is one of the problems that we face right now in this pandemic is both the crisis of institutions, whether it's our government, Chinese government, that make it so that we all have to kind of read studies in nature and trade them. And then the fact that everything's so politicized that you feel like if you're giving, like if you concede something uh, like, oh, this study may have some merit, that you're conceding all the other grievances about the way that this has been handled, right? So I, I sympathize with people who want to push back on this, but I wanted to give our fair reading. Totally. Completely agree. For sure. And that's science for you. It's always moving. Never, never stays still. <laughs> um, so with all of the news about the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, there's been another big story flying a bit under the radar. President Biden following through on his promise and choosing Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to succeed Justice Stephen Breyer and become the first black woman on the Supreme Court. Much of the focus has been on her identity after Biden pledged during his campaign to nominate a black woman to the court. But Jackson has a stellar resume. 
She got her law degree from Harvard, and she's been a federal judge since 2013 when she was nominated by President Obama. Since last year, she has served on the D.C. Circuit Court, often called the second highest court in the country. She served as a public defender early in her career, which would make her the first nominee since Thurgood Marshall to have criminal defense experience. In the last of her three federal clerkships, she worked for Stephen Breyer, who is the retiring justice she will replace. So the interesting thing about all of these accolades that I just read off, which are just stellar and amazing, and and I think she's very qualified for this position, is that I haven't been hearing a lot about these accolades in the mainstream media coming from either the left or the right. And it just seems that because Biden fixated so much on her identity, And the left also is fixating so much on her identity, and that's being weaponized by the right. It just seems like that's become so much a part of the conversation. I mean, mean, you probably saw this when Obama was running. It's like everybody's like, oh, first black president, but like nobody really talked as much about like why he was so qualified for that job in the first place. And I just see that as a a troubling trend here. Uh, For instance, I have a couple of tweets I just want to point out. Um, Anna Navarro uh, from CNN Uh, tweeted that on campaign two years ago at Joe Biden promised to nominate the first black woman to SCOTUS when vacancy came up. He said he'd deliver on that promise. But damn, watching him nominate Katanji Brown Jackson flanked by Kamala Harris, first WOC, woman of color VP, is still so emotional and inspiring. And I'm sure it is. But there's no mention there of any of Miss Jackson's qualifications. Don Lemon says President Biden formally nominates Katanji Brown Jackson for the Supreme Court. If confirmed, she'll be the first black woman to sit on the high court. Congratulations. Long overdue. Still no mention of that she went to Harvard and how you know qualified she is. And again, I think it's incredible that the Supreme Court is probably going to see their first uh, African-American woman. But when you make it solely about that and you don't at all talk about the qualifications, that's going to be weaponized by the opposition to say, oh, she's an affirmative action hire when she clearly isn't. Yeah, I, I'm of two minds of this. I think I sympathize with Anna Navarro because if you know if you haven't had a single black woman on the court and then you see somebody nominated to it, I could see that being an emotional moment, right? And I, I don't, I don't begrudge her for saying, hey, like this got me emotional. And in the way that, like for instance, like Obama, you know, being, you know, getting the nomination, being president, to me was emotional. I'm not even black, but I'm somebody who's half uh, white and half something else. And just like the idea of a biracial person, somebody who opposed the Iraq War, all of that, like it was emotional to me. So I get the sort of I get that, and I and I and it's a travesty that we've had such a homogenous institution this long. And as we've talked about in previous segments, it's kind of a bind that that Biden was in because I think we generally came down in the kind of incomprehensible belief that he should have nominated a black woman. At least this was my position, but shouldn't have promised it if he could have gotten away with not promising it. Which I'll save people the comments on YouTube. It doesn't make what I just said makes no sense. It's not a very courageous stance. But now that she's nominated, I do think it's really important, like you said, to talk about her accomplishments and to make it about that as much or more than anything else. And I think in contrast to you know my, my now widely shared views about Harris, this is a no-brainer pick. She's super qualified. Yes. I love the fact that she is a former public defender. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's not enough of that. Yeah. Like if you look at just the weight of former prosecutors, former DOJ officials, former judges, there's not enough of the public defense bar represented in office. I happened to to be around one uh, who was the former mayor of Nashville, Carl Dean, who used to be the city's, uh, city's top lawyer, which included their city's public defender. And he looked at things differently given that experience. So I think this is welcome. I think her experience, obviously she's, she's usually credentialed. 
she comes at it from a different perspective. You know, she'll be a liberal, but she'll be a different kind of liberal potentially on the bench. We knew a liberal was coming, which is why they're like, I don't have that much more to say about that. Yeah. Beyond just her credentials, she's also a good pick because I think that she's probably going to be confirmed or at least more likely to be confirmed because just in June, she was nominated to the D.C. Circuit and three Republicans uh, voted to confirm her, Lindsey Graham, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. And that will definitely make them look highly ideological to say, oh, you were you were qualified for this position. But now that you're the opposite party's nominee, you're no longer qualified between last June and now. And so I think that Mm -hmm. um, Republicans will definitely be in a tough position given that so that also makes her a good pick on just a strategic level too yeah and I, i've been doing some things since our last segment about this and i think there's not enough of the emphasis of the the blame on the historic actors who've gotten us to this place right because mm-hmm. i think like so much of our outrage in mind including during the last segment was like biden making this promise all these people making about identity politics and i and i definitely have my opinions about that but not enough about like, how the hell did we get to the point where there wasn't a black woman on the court after all these years, you know? And like, why not enough emphasis on the fact that there was obviously clear racial bias over our our country's history? I'm not saying that's your bias, but I'm saying like, in general, like a lot of the people who are getting, like, especially like people who are trying to criticize Biden on this from the right, like, I'm like, I'm kind of with you on like the promise having some issues, but like, can we also like really get into the fact that this was a problem in the first place, like an acknowledgement of the problem of the lack of diversity, like some kind of answer about how you're gonna do anything about it, right? Like, what are you gonna do? If you're not gonna have a litmus test, what's the answer here when you have such an imbalance racially, you know? For the first half of this country, African-American woman couldn't even vote or hold office and couldn't even go to the colleges that would be required to get the experience to be on the Supreme Court. So, and not not to mention African-American men also suffer from that and women in general also suffer from that. So there were barriers put in place for for much of this country's history to make it where the Supreme Court was a majority uh, white male body. And again, of course, I have no problem with this pick, but again, the focus on identity, the only thing I will say, the caveat to that is we did the same thing with Harris. A lot of right. people did the same thing with Harris. And it comes, when it, when you look at her actual track record, she wasn't as a, a friend to the African-American community, especially if you look at some of the things she did as DA in, yeah. in San Francisco, as, as you know, you would think. And so that's all I say. I just say that we should, when mm-hmm. we look at these individuals, let's look at them for more than immutable characteristics. Let's look at them for their track record, their accomplishments, everything, and weight that along with all of these other things that we want to promote in this yeah. country. And that's, that's really all I have to say. But... Um, we're going to do a quick update. Your friend Bragg, the DA here in Manhattan, uh, seems to be seems to be off having, to a great start, huh? Well, he's having some trouble <laughs> with this uh, this Trump investigation. What what is going on? Well, okay, so we we had talked to Bragg uh, before he took office and asked him, "Hey, like, are you going to recuse yourself from this Trump investigation?" Uh, he said he wouldn't because he had promised essentially to you know go after Trump essentially, uh, and and now he's kind of in, in some hot water because. On Wednesday, the New York Times reported that two of the most prominent prosecutors overseeing this Trump case, and, and as a reminder, Bragg is overseeing the criminal case in New York against Trump, and uh, Tish James, the New York Attorney General, is overseeing the civil case against Trump, which is continuing to move forward. But there was reporting that these two senior prosecutors on the case under Bragg resigned, and there's all these uh, sourced anecdotes about how Bragg was dragging his feet about reading documents and looking at his phone in key meetings and not really being attentive to this case, et cetera. And there've been a ton of people going online saying, all right, like 
we need there's actually somebody who said it this is john cooper on on twitter is it time to start investigating the manhattan da so people are pissed that wow. Bragg is not moving forward with this case it's not he hasn't announced that he's not moving forward but it just all evidence seems to suggest that he's not keen to move this case forward mm -hmm. And, you know, this is Stephen Beschloss. New doubts about Alvin Bragg's intentions to criminally prosecute Trump should be a reminder that it's up to the nation's top law enforcement official, Merrick Garland, to do his duty and prosecute the man who's aggressively flouted the rule of law on multiple fronts. Rob Reiner had a tweet to this effect. Now, I'll reiterate my stance on this. Bragg, as did Tish James, publicly called out Trump as they were running for office, saying that they wanted to go after him in, in, in so many words. And to me... Bragg should have and should and he still can do this and and Tish James should wall off this prosecution, give it to career prosecutors and allow them to do their business because this pressure that you're seeing out there, it's almost like a witch hunt. Like, do I think Trump committed some crimes? Probably, but it's going to be impossible to truly look at this impartially because there's so much pressure on these people. And what I'm seeing from Twitter from the left is if we can't get this prosecutor to go after it, we need to remove them from office, get another prosecutor who will, or go forum shopping, go to the Department of Justice, get them to do it. If they won't do it, let's, hell, let's get every state to do it until we could find somebody who was willing to move forward with this. And people should be asking themselves, is there sufficient evidence? Are there impartial, objective prosecutors on this? Has anybody who's shown any bias before they took over this case recusing themselves for the case so that we can make sure it's really pure? And the irony is, if you would have followed that step, we wouldn't be in this mess because the very people who resigned would be in charge of this and he wouldn't be in the middle of it. And I said this to him, like, do you, they're actually you're not the you know the best lawyer in New York. That's not why you were you were picked for this job. You were picked because of other qualities. You're a politician. Like give this to to impartial career prosecutors. And if he had done that, the story wouldn't exist. He wouldn't have to be staring at his phone in these meetings. He wouldn't have to be worrying about reading any of these memos. He could be focused on all the other things that we can get to at some point that are going on in the island of Manhattan that are requiring his attention. This is a very troubling trend that I see on the left. Like when you say that, well, if we can't get this prosecutor to take down Trump, let's get somebody else to right. do it. That always comes to backfire. I mean, that's what we had with the Mueller report. Oh, the Mueller report didn't work. Well, let's get him for what he did to Ukraine. Oh, that didn't work. Well, let's get him for January 6th. It's like, yeah, I agree. Trump has probably done some things that warrant jail time. I'm, I'm going to say probably. I don't, I'm not going to say absolutely has, but he probably has. They will never actually get that evidence on him because they're constantly, it's almost like we want the evidence before we find it. So when we find it, can we trust it? Yeah. You know? Well, I, I have different take on those cases, but I don't think we have enough time to do them, especially Ukraine, where I think it was well, very no, clearly I, no, but, illegal activity. But my activity. thing is, I think Ukraine yeah. and Gen 6, I think those were both impeachable offenses, but the reason why those impeachments look so weak is because of the Mueller investigation. Yeah. But even there, but I don't want to get into that today, but well, for you another don't time, we'll debate. no collusion, no, no obstruction? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't. I actually think if you, my reading of the Mueller report is that there was evidence of obstruction of justice. Obstruction, But yeah. this is not that segment. So this is what's going to happen now. Either Bragg is going to fold and he's going to bring charges, which I think is very possible. Long time listening, Bragg, don't do it. Like, if you don't think there's a case, don't bring the case. Obviously, if you do think there is a case, I'm not sure what's going on behind the scenes. But this is why this thing shouldn't be in his hands. Uh, but in general, I think that's a strong possibility. There's also the possibility that somebody else picks up this case, including Merrick Garland, who, to my knowledge, hasn't made any prejudicial statements. So I have less concerns yeah. about him doing this. I do have concerns about this mob, though, that exists outside of these cases that seems to be demanding from their elected officials. So my, my message to all those people is, 
allow career prosecutors to do their jobs. Stop frothing at the mouth about this kind of stuff. Imagine if the shoe was on the other foot, like I said. Imagine that scenario of Arkansas. Yeah, if there was somebody Clinton. running in Arkansas, yeah. Republican, on the idea that they were going to go after the Clintons. How would you feel about that if they then brought a case against Clinton? Or what, how would you feel if they didn't, but then the Republican voters of Arkansas demanded that they did, and then they capitulated? That would be insane. Yeah. And you'd be against that for the same reason that we should be against this. Yeah, this idea of like locking up our political opponents is just, it's just right. ridiculous. But... Great episode. We thank you all for listening and watching. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you're listening to our podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.